Paul has served under both Republicans and Democrats and is held in the highest esteem for his sound and independent judgment. Uh, he pulls no punches. He uh, seems to be fairly opinionated. Hi, welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Wednesday, November 26th. It's about 2.35 p.m. on the East Coast. It's Thanksgiving Eve. And we're going to continue today with our series on what is money, this weird, mysterious thing that we have grown so accustomed to. We'll continue on that in a moment. But uh, first, let's talk about the news today. There is so much business and economics news today. But I think the most exciting, interesting thing is that we now know that Paul Volcker will have an official role in the new president's administration. He's so Paul back. Vo- yeah. Well, Paul Volcker uh, was the man who many feel saved the U.S. economy back in the uh, early 1980s when we had runaway inflation. And um, after, you know, over a decade of lousy monetary policy, uh, Paul Volcker took over the reins of the Federal Reserve and just whipped this economy into shape and played a I'd say most people see him as one of the single most heroic and smart economic managers of many, many decades. So so it, uh, some had hoped he'd be the Treasury Secretary, but it's nice to know he'll have a role. He's going to be the head of a special board overseeing how the economy can be um, put back to rights. He's, he's 81, so maybe, who knows, maybe that's why he didn't want to be Treasury Secretary. Uh, but we uh, will continue to bring you news and thoughts about Obama's new economic team. But I will note that, as we said yesterday, this is a this does strike me as a pragmatic, get things done kind of team. When you think about Tim Geithner, Larry Summers, Paul Volcker, uh, these names that we're hearing, this is not a let's be super lefty, you know, redistributionist you know, have a, a new generation of, of union loyal anti-business or whatever you might think, whatever the worst fantasies of the right were about what President-elect Obama might have had. This is also not a, you know, incredibly bipartisan group. I mean, this is a group of, I call them center-left Democrats, but, but emphasis on the center. This is a pragmatic group that... Um, doesn't strike me as one that's going to put politics or ideology ahead of just fixing the economy. So um, I have to say, no. I'm fascinated to be living in a time when so many people are willing to completely reconsider how things are done. Yeah, well, we we've obviously got to, and and um, this is not a team that will. This strikes me as a team that's going to base their decisions more more than likely on 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 you know reason and best practices, not on ideology. So. Who knows? I mean, I'm, you know, politicians and the political process always has a way of disappointing. So I might listen to this podcast in a few years and just laugh at how naive I was. What are you thinking for a planet money indicator? You know, today we really had a lot to choose from. Uh, A whole bunch of data the government released today. It's all just painting the picture we've already known that the economy is 
really, really lousy. Um, one indicator we could use is 433,000. That's the uh, number of uh, newly built U.S. single-family homes. That might sound like a lot. Oh, by the way, sorry, 433,000 is the annual rate if October's number were annualized, I guess multiplied by 12 or whatever. Not exactly. I mean, it's seasonally adjusted, blah, blah, blah. But basically, that's very little. Uh, We should be, our economy should be uh, producing well, well, well over a million homes a year. And it's producing fewer than 500,000. Also, even though it's fewer homes... The average price of a home fell to 218000 That's really bad. Uh, consumer spending fell again by 1%. Mm. Uh, that's really bad. That You remember last month we made a big deal about consumer spending falling 0.3%. So this month it fell 1%. Now uh, they're really going to give us something to cry about. Yeah, and and it goes on and on. There's um, there was a six point two percent fall in durable goods. We talked about that a lot last year. That's things like fridges and cars and things that are meant to last a while. Uh, So clearly, people are really putting off their durable goods purchases. Things that anything they can put off. They're going to put a few more miles on that car. They're going to deal with the leaky fridge. Um, this is just not a time people are going to be spending a lot of money. So um, pick any of those numbers and just try not to think about it over Thanksgiving, I guess. <laughs> All right. I'm going to turn our attention a little bit here to money and to the what is money question. Before we get too far into the theory of it, though, we thought we'd take a step back, way back. Let's define the word money. And who better to do that than our friend Amon Shea? author of Reading the OED and several other books about words. We asked Ammon to spend the weekend scouring his, what do you have, a thousand dictionaries? A uh, thousand volumes of dictionaries, but, you know, they, they kind of add up. They lose count. Okay. Yeah. A lot of dictionaries as well as other lexicographical sources. So wh- when, where does the word money come from? Uh, it's It's got a, a kind of nice etymology. Uh, if you go back through all the Anglo-Norman and the Old French and the Middle French and the Sideways French and all that, uh, ultimately it goes back really to classical Latin and the word moneta, which was originally the name of a goddess uh, who was identical to the Roman goddess Juno. Um, and in Moneta or Juno's temple in Rome, uh, it was where money was coined. Um, it's where they made the actual metal coins that they used as money in those times. Um, so it became uh, synonymous with the word mint. Um, and from mint, we got money um, because that's basically where uh, the money was. Uh, so the idea of worshiping money then is very old. Well, I guess so. I don't as know if it was. Money. Yeah, yeah. It's as old as money. It's maybe the third oldest profession in the world. Right. And how has it changed? I mean, one thing we've learned this week is that it wasn't that long ago. I mean, right through the seven, early 70s, right until the early 70s, that mon- even paper money had a close link to metal, to gold or silver. Um, we now live in a world of what they call fiat currency, where the dollar is just worth whatever people believe the dollar right. should be worth. 
And you know the, the dollar bill is, is is pretty recent. It's not as recent as the 1970s, certainly, but um, it's it's tied to, for instance, one of the, the terms for money is greenback, and that came shortly after President Abraham Lincoln created the dollar bill, which he created in I think it was 1862. Um, so you know greenback and I, I would assume buck and dollar you know dollar bill comes from that that time period, which is really you know not that long ago. Um, it's it's pretty pretty common and pretty current. There's lots of other words for money. Too. A lot of the ones that I like are the, uh, the the Cockney rhyming slang, like whistle and toot, which is slang for from loot. Uh, bees and honey rhymes with money. Sausage and mash are the uh, my favorite. Yeah, and then my favorite one is Oscar, which means cash because it's taken from the name of Oscar Ash, who is a, a 19th century Australian actor. So that's a really kind of <laughs> obscure one, but I, I like that it gives a little bit of history to your slang. If you if you're talking about, it, I don't have any Oscar on me. And money itself has become slang. Well, yeah, that's yeah. money. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Money. Money is it's a term for somebody. It's a term of uh, friendship or, you know, what's up, money? You know. I was looking through a book the other day of uh, David Crystal, who's a, another great kind of writer on language and the English language in particular. He has this wonderful little book called As They Say in Zan- Zanzibar, which is about proverbs from all around the world. And I, I feel like you get kind of an idea of how certain nationalities look at things. Like if you look at the, 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 the USA, the, the American proverbs about money, the things like money makes the world go round or a dog with money is addressed Mr. Dog. I mean, these are attributed by him as to being U.S. Uh, proverbs. And then you have other ones like in Estonia, they say money cries in one's pocket, which is a little bit more poetic perhaps. My my favorite of all is one from Albania. And I hope that this is translated a little wrong because it's uh, an Albanian proverb, which is brotherly love for brotherly love, but cheese for money. I, I have no I, idea what that means. I have you no have to idea. Just what, feel that one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about, but yeah. I'm going to start using that one. In cheese Albanian, for money. Yeah. In Albanian, it makes total sense. Yeah. So cheese is another one. Excellent. Thank you, Emin Shea. Next, Adam, you and Planet Money producer Caitlin Kinney went out on the streets with kind of a mission this week, right? Yeah, we've been talking all this week about what is money. We've heard from a historian, a lexicographer. But I know this guy, Peter Fisher, who actually used to make money in a sense. In in his garage or what? Yeah, I mean, well, what we've learned is that all of us make money every time we we take out a loan and um, multiply the monetary base of a bank. We've learned um, some of these ideas. um, Peter Fisher did more than that, although I'm not taught he didn't work in the print shop. He wasn't, you know, banging out uh, dollar bills. He uh, ran the open market trading desk at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Um, That's basically the part of the Fed, when you hear this phrase, injecting liquidity, injecting capital, money creation, it's the open market trading desk that is bringing new dollars into the world and using them to buy things from banks. And I thought that all sounded really, really complicated. So I said, how about we just go buy a hot dog? We bought one from a hot dog seller named Ashraf Jundi. He's the first voice, actually the second voice you hear me first, then Ashraf Jundi, then Peter Fisher. Hi. Good. So where are we right now? We're on in 52nd and Madison Avenue. What's your name? Ash. Ash? Great. um, I wanted to get, do you want anything? Are you hungry? Uh, I have a Coke and a hot dog. How do you like the hot dogs? 
How do you like the hot dogs? Oh, plain. Peter, I'm going to get this. Okay. How much is that? It's $2.25. That's it? Uh, yeah. Hang on. Else? So I'm going to pay you with this piece of paper. You're willing to accept that? Sure. What is it? It is money. It's not a piece of paper. <laughs> All right. So I'm holding it. This is what I'm going to pay for your hot dog and Coke with. Yeah. This is a piece of paper. Yeah, it's a $5 bill. It's a liability of a Federal Reserve Bank. So to you, what, what does it say up here? Federal Reserve Note. It says Federal Reserve Note. Yeah, and that means this is this is a note that a Federal Reserve Bank issues, and it uh, it's money. It's a, it's a store of value and a medium of exchange. But it's a little bit of paper that represents a claim on a reserve bank. And all they'll actually give you now, if you bring it in, is they'll give you another one. So there was a time when uh, that $5 bill meant I could bring it to the Federal Reserve Bank and say, hey, I want a certain weight of silver or a certain amount of gold. Uh, That doesn't happen anymore, and I didn't quite understand what replaced it. What backs up that $5? So um, Peter and I headed across 52nd Street to the lobby of his office. He now works uh, at the uh, huge private equity firm BlackRock, and we talked some more. So if I track Ben Bernanke down and say, all right, I I, want to... I want my claim. Here's my claim for five of your things. He's going to give you five more of these same things. That's because we've accepted paper currency. We've moved to a fiat currency. Fiat meaning we made it up? The central bank decides how many of them they create. So when we used to say a central bank bank can only issue, or any bank, issue as many liabilities as they can redeem in gold— now, if you go back far enough, the origin of banking uh, was uh, goldsmiths. Uh, people would leave their gold in the safe custody of a goldsmith in London, and then the goldsmiths figured out they didn't have to keep as much gold around as there were clients who had claims on them for. So all the clients had little bits of paper saying, this goldsmith, gold merchant, owes me so much gold. Well, they realized they didn't have to have 100% of that on hand at any one day. They could lend it out. Uh, so that's, those are the first banks. Th- those are the modern first banks. There are other elements of banking, that, but, but that's an important way to think about banking and how it began. And, and until 100 years ago or so, the U.S. was pretty much just a big goldsmith. I mean, they handed out pieces of paper, but really their value was the you no, st- we, we, we moved along. Um, uh, we didn't have a central bank in this country from the 1830s until 1914. So banks created money themselves. We called that the era of wildcat banking. Uh, and it was all about whether people were comfortable taking their notes or not. So I would have had... I might have a wallet full of money and each one's from a different bank. Yeah, you would have. You would have had a claim on different banks. And so the check you write on your bank today is a note drawn on a bank. And currency in the late 19th century was issued by banks. It was like, so if I had $5 from Bank of America, it would be the same as writing a check to you 
on my Bank of America account. It would, yes, it would be similar. I would treat it similarly. I would think of that as a claim on Bank of America. Now, you can go to Hong Kong today, and the money's issued by Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. That's, HSBC? That's HSBC. The paper money comes from there. You can go to Scotland, and the bank's issued by the Royal Bank of Scotland. Which is a private bank? Which is actually a private bank. Um, but that's where they still have the ish- privilege of issuing the paper. And money in the Bank of Eng- in England, issue- money is issued by the Bank of England, which is the central bank. And so you- we ended up rolling up note issuance on central banks. We all came to feel more comfortable holding the paper of the central bank than the individual banks. And then until 1971, this was theoretically backed by gold? It just wasn't there wasn't a practical way for me to... That's a... Um, the demise of the gold standard took a long time. There were lots of steps along the way. The final, though, really was about foreign countries being able to claim gold on the United States. And so that removed the discipline on the issuance of the United States of its gold liabil- of liabilities. The individual consumers, I forget what year the law was passed, had not been able to present notes and get gold back for long before the 1970s. So, but certainly for virtually all of my life, most of your life, definitely all of Caitlin's life, this is, what is it? It's just a piece of paper that the only reason I think it has value is because everyone else I know thinks it has value. And the only reason everyone I know th- thinks it has value is because we, we just trust that the Federal Reserve isn't going to mess the things up. The Federal Reserve issues, there are two kinds of liabilities the Federal Reserve issues. There are notes, those are claims on the Fed, and there are also deposits that really only banks get to have deposits with the Federal Reserve. The, the Fed is a central bank, and its customers are only banks. Uh, and so the Fed issues these things, these bits of paper. They come out, they actually issue those to banks. Banks buy them from the Fed, and then the banks, we go to our ATM machine and we get them out of our bank account. But the bank has to have, have, to have got the notes from the Fed. So in a minute, I'm going to go to Starbucks because I want to get some of their hot apple cider, which I like very much. I might use this $5 bill. But what I might do is use this credit card. Is it the same thing as far as what money is? I mean, if I give them this $5, I'm saying here's a note on the Federal Reserve that I have in my possession. I'm now giving it, putting it in your possession. There's no new money created, right? I mean, it's... it's, well, it's, it's, already, it's already outstanding. We're just pushing money we're just, around. We're just moving the claim on the Fed from one party to another. Now, what happens if instead of giving them the $5, $5 bill... I take this MasterCard credit card and pay with that. Well, that, you're using a credit card. You've got a relationship with MasterCard and with a bank that, that's issued you the card. And that's your right to borrow money from that bank through MasterCard. And they're going to pay the merchant. So one reason credit cards have worked so well is the merchant's going to think that's almost as good as the $5 bill. Unfortunately, he's going to have a little service charge, which is going to annoy him, but he picks it up on volume because it means more people will come into his store because he takes a credit card. But ignoring the fee for a moment, he's he's got a claim on the bank that issued the credit card and on MasterCard, the credit card company, and he's confident they're going to pay him. But But he's actually accepted their credit now, not the credit of the Federal Reserve. And 
Now, the other thing that's happening that's a little tricky, you're borrowing money from that bank on that credit card at the same time. They're going to lend that to you. And now they are creating money on their balance sheet. So when I, let's say, I buy a round of hot apple ciders, and let's just, for the sake of argument, say it costs $5 exactly. And I hand him my credit card. He, he swipes it. It's now, is that new money? That the, so if I hand him the $5 bill, I am moving money that already exists from me to him. It's not a big deal. If I use my credit card, that's a new $5 that has never existed before? Yes, we've got, we've got a little bit of time we've got to work with here, but let's, let's expand time and assume you're not going to pay the credit card company back. You're going to run that on uh, and leave it outstanding, and then you're going to pay interest on it at the end of the month. So when we, we expand time and, and include all of that, what happened was the bank lent you a dollar, and they paid uh, the Starbucks uh, vendors, they paid Starbucks the $5, and... Now they've lent you money, and you owe them money. And there's five more dollars in the world. Um, y- yes, they have um, lent you money, and so they've written up an asset on their balance sheet. And, but now Starbucks could get paid from the bank. They, they now have a $5 piece of paper if they want. They could go give that to someone. I mean, that's, that's new money. That's how money's... Yes. Is that how money's created? Yes, banks create money when they make a loan to someone. And you, you get a loan, and they actually have to give you money so you can go buy the house or buy the cup of uh, hot cider, right? You're getting it, and you then have to go spend it. That's why you borrowed it, presumably, because you're going to use it for something. And they still have a claim on you for the loan they've written. You have a liability to them. They have an asset from you. All right. I have two questions for you and Peter Fisher. The first, Adam, is don't you have to pay back a loan with money that exists already? Well, I I don't have the money. Uh, the money doesn't exist for me. Like all my wealth isn't stacked up in a pile of money that I'll, I'll, I'll pay it out to you. When you lend me, say, $100,000, you give me a $100,000 loan, you are saying that I trust that over the next, say, 10 years, you will be in a position to pay that back. So so I trust that over the next 10 years, you are going to do productive things and create value in the world worth at least $10,000 a year plus interest. Um, you're going to create radio stories or build fences or you know, make, make, make omelets or whatever it is you do to make money. So, so a loan is not saying I have a hundred thousand, you have a hundred thousand, let's just trade. It's saying I have a hundred thousand dollars and I have faith and confidence that you have the ability to create a hundred thousand dollars in value in the future if you get this hundred thousand. So I'm gonna lend it to you. Okay. Does that help? It does help. But this is my second question. If borrowing creates money, should every concerned citizen be using credit cards more? I mean, as long as they can pay it off, you know, if they don't get in trouble with it. Now, this is something that I kind of glossed over a little bit with Peter Fisher. But actually, if you pay it off each month, you're not really creating money. I mean, you create money when you have an existing debt. So if you put 30 bucks on your credit card and you pay it off at the end of the month, you're really just using existing money and moving the money around. It's just taking 
you know, 30 days or whatever. Um, but but the, the broader question, should we just all borrow lots of money and then there will be lots of money? I, I, basically, you can get to the point where you're just borrowing I mean, in a, in a certain sense, in a ridiculous sense, maybe that makes sense. Then we'll all have money. If everyone borrowed $100,000, then everyone could buy a new car and a whole bunch of TV sets and it would fuel the economy. But remember, that $100,000 is based on the confidence that each person who gets $100,000 will be in a position to create value worthy of that abstract number. And if everyone's doing it at an unsustainable rate, then uh, you get our present whole, situation. You get our present situation. Basically, that is what we were doing for several years, um, fueled by a misunderstanding of of the long term value of housing prices, and you know that that's what makes this time period right now not not so fun. Okay, Adam, I'm going to say thank you for that. You have given me a lot to think about over the next couple of days. Now, we're going to take tomorrow and Friday off. We'll all try and blog a little bit at npr.org slash money uh, through our El Tryptophan haze. But (laughs) you can definitely expect a nice podcast on Monday. We've already built a lot of the elements, and we're excited about them. After this holiday weekend, we're going to come back rested and ready to conquer the economic world some more. Yeah. Meanwhile, send us pictures of the economy. Folks, if you're going out shopping, mail pictures, please. What do you see? Planet Money at NPR.org. And before we go, I would like to give a special big thank you to Caitlin Kinney, who produces this podcast every day. She here, here. A- we should be thanking Caitlin every day. She is awesome. She yep. is the backbone of this whole thing. Um, and I'd like to thank you, the Planet Money listeners. We're actually talking about my God, do I like our listeners. Um, thanks for uh, sticking with us. Thanks for uh, a- asking your great questions and giving your great comments. I'm Laura Conaway. I'm heading for my family in the kitchen in Brooklyn. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm already with my family in Brooklyn. See you on Monday. When they call your name, will you walk right up with a smile on your face? We cower in fear in your favorite sweater with an old love letter.